HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes and reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today is a pre-recorded episode. Today's episode number 46, and I'm very pleased to have Michelle McKenzie in the studio with me. Michelle is a cooking teacher and a cookbook author and also the program director at 18 Reasons in San Francisco, which is a cooking school, um, and has just written a fantastic book all about vegetables, Dandelion and Quince, Exploring the Wide World of Unusual Vegetables. I'm going to say that again so I don't totally murder it. Dandelion and Quince, exploring the wide world of unusual vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Michelle. Thanks for joining me. Um, I'm, we are not, in fact, at a party, uh, but there is a giant party going on right there outside the studio. So you can probably hear some bass and dancing and screaming. And so we're just not partying. Sunday, we're just talking. Sunday afternoon in Brooklyn. Yeah, it, it's, it's Roberta's. You kind of never know what you're going to get. Uh, so, uh, Michelle, uh, you live in San Francisco, I but uh, are in New York just for a couple of days, so I want to take the opportunity to interview you while you're here, because your book has just come out. It has, August 2nd. It just came out about a month ago. Awesome. And how, uh, so you've been touring around a little bit, doing some events for it? Just a little bit, to um, cooking schools that specialize in teaching home cooks, much like the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, I... That's you know doing a book signing is a fun way to meet people, but I get a lot more out of um, teaching and learning from students um, as I travel around. And how did the book how did the book come about? How what sort of uh, you know what was your process? I am in the middle of writing my own book, and I know the process for how that book came about. Cookbooks come about in various ways, sometimes driven by a chef or a celebrity or a specific ingredient. How did your book come about? My book came about because I was perusing farmers markets and um, watching people approach something 
with excitement, and it was something unusual. Maybe it was, um, you know, purslane nettles. Um, maybe even just something that we see that now we take for granted. But years ago, you know, squash blossoms. Um, now they're sort of everywhere, but. You know, six, seven years ago, um, American home cooks weren't quite sure what to do with them, and they would walk up to them and they'd be like, "What is this?" And they'd pick it up, and I would watch this excitement turn to apprehension, or and sure. then they'd walk away. And I just had this like urge to always tell them like what to do with it, to take it home, to have fun, like ways they could approach it. And I started teaching a class at 18 Reasons in San Francisco, the cooking school in San Francisco, and um, I, this class kept selling out. And the class would focus on two um, vegetables, fruits, or herbs at a time, and I would dive deep into those two and then I would do another class with another two and they just kept selling out and eventually a book was born. That's great. I mean, you mentioned personally, and you know, that's one that grows wild all over the place. I feel like I see it in New York all, all over. It grows on my roof. Like, you know, we plant flowers or we plant tomatoes and then personally sprouts up in there. Um, and it's a, it's a delicious, uh, you know, salad green that I think is all around. And there's a lot of things like that. Lamb's quarter grows wild in New York. Um, I had a friend who, you know, used to say you could find all kinds of things in San Francisco. I mean, you know, I'm walking along, I noticed fennel growing in some tree yeah, pits in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of those things, but it's not, um, does your book, is it, does it cover foraging, or is it more about finding people that are growing these It's vegetables? not about foraging. And the, the things that I included um, that were really wild, like purslane, lamb's quarter, chickweed, miner's lettuce, um, those things are showing up at a lot of farmer's markets. I was even mm-hmm. at the Union Square Market on Friday here, and I saw purslane and lamb's quarter. Um, you know, and people also um, grow purslane um, in beds and things like that. Sure. So I didn't include you know, really esoteric things that are, that are really hard to find. Everything I included in the book, um, I, I've seen little markets, even like around my dad's place and uh, outside of Nashville. So I can find purslane in a little Mexican tienda outside of Nashville, right. um, things like that. So things that were left out were things like salsify, which I love, but are sure. really quite hard to find, um, yeah. or things that you really have to go forage yourself. I mean, ramps would be an example. Ramps are foraged only. Right. People don't grow them in beds, um, but they, they, they show up in markets all over the place. Right. Right. Uh, Certainly, you know that at least in the Northeast. I don't know if that's true in uh, on the West Coast, but in the Northeast, that's like that is the harbinger of spring. It is like when the ramps finally show up, even if they're coming from you know West Virginia or somewhere further south, and it's still you know below thirty degrees in New York City. That's it. When you see the ramps, you know that spring's finally upon us. Right, and I think that's true for San Francisco. And I actually battled a little bit with myself on whether to include ramps because they're not a local thing to San Francisco or to really anywhere except for the Northeast. Um, but they are shipped widely, and they are an exciting thing. I think I say it in my introduction to ramps. Like this is something that's being shipped across the U.S. if you don't live in, in the Northeast. Um, but there's such a special thing. And yeah. I just, you know, I, if, if home cooks are going to be purchasing them, I want to empower them to use them in several ways. Absolutely. And, and one of the great things about, you know, about farmers markets as they've expanded in the last 30 years or so is that I think the farmers themselves now have the ability to present a wider array of vegetables. They don't have to just present the ones that are available in the supermarket. It's not just cabbage and carrots and beets and lettuce, they can really go sort of further. Right. And, but, you know, I do think it requires that um, home cooks ask for these things. So when sure. I was at the Union Square Market on Friday, I was looking for fig leaves for my class at the Brooklyn Kitchen. And, you know, because even if figs aren't in season anymore, um, if it's a little too hot or it's the end of the season, or I'm not sure. We're, we're, I didn't see any figs, but fig leaves are still around. So I asked one of the farmers that I was buying um, garlic scapes from, and she said, darn it, I wish I had known. Like, I have a fig tree full of leaves. And, you know, it's that kind of thing where sure. if people are asking for them, 
um, these farmers will will bring them to market. The right. same thing with bolting fennel. Um, I asked a farmer, and he was like, "What are you going to do with the flowers?" And I'm like, "They had cut them off and like left them behind." Yeah. So um, the things that are in the the things in, that are featured in the book um, will show up more too if we if we start asking for them. And these are exciting, fun, delicious products. Then fennel pollen. I mean, you know, if you buy it. Yeah in a jar um, shipped over from Italy it's incredibly expensive by yep. the ounce but if you just have a farmer who's like bringing fennel to market anyway and they're cutting off the flowers because they don't want them right yeah. and you dry those yourself in a paper bag and then thrash out the fennel pollen it's free basically and you've gotten to use the fennel too so um, these things are showing up and more will show up if we keep asking for it absolutely do you have a, a sort of I mean, it's, I, I guess it's like asking who's your favorite child, but I mean, do you I have a, Do you have a favorite <laughs> recipe in the book that's one that, that, you know, I mean, you know, I have to imagine that while you love all of the recipes, there are probably some that you're not going to make as often as others. That's how I feel about the recipes in my book. Anyway. Yeah. So the, the, the vegetable that I don't make as often as the others is um, cardoons. Like, I, mm. you know, that one, because I, I really, it gets really pithy when it gets old. Like finding the perfect cardoon is like kind of hard. It's only around for a little bit. Um, so I don't mess with those much. And when I do, I like simply... My favorite way to eat them is like fried in like a tempura batter. The thing that I would probably make over and over again. I mean, Harry, can you can you even do that for yourself? I mean, like that's (laughs) such a hard question. Like, can you give me like a season? I mean, so one of my favorite things is is lamb shoulder. That's one of my favorite things is lamb shoulder because it doesn't require a lot of prep time. It gives a lot, and then I can turn a leftover lamb shoulder into a bunch of meals throughout the week. And the lamb shoulder. I mean, we're talking about a book on vegetables, fruits, and herbs. So the lamb shoulder, FYI, for those of you who have not seen the book is in the um, rose petal section. So I take um, dried rose petals and crush them up into a spice blend for the lamb shoulder. Um, And rose petals are one of those things that people like, you know, we know about rose water, um, but the petals get a little bit underused and they're an incredible ingredient. And that floral quality is like actually very good with meat um, and sardines and other things. Um, So um, lamb shoulder is, you know, something I love vegetables, but I also, I'm a big meat meat eater. Um, I had lamb for breakfast this morning and um yeah that that's something i really it's like good comfort food and it and it it can be stretched over many meals throughout the week so talking i mean you you bring up seasons so we're we're sort of headed into fall i mean you wouldn't know it from the last few days here in new york where it's been in the 90s but we are definitely starting to see those fall vegetables show up um what's your favorite fall vegetable that you know you would categorize as unusual um, so, and by the way, I love, I love it when we're like right in between seasons. Like this, actually this time of year is my favorite time of year. The late summer, early fall, we're straddling these two seasons. So eggplant's still around, yep. which is like one of my favorite vegetables. And then you're, and like beans, like I was, you know, all sorts of different beans are still around, but you're starting to see pumpkins coming in. Um, and while pumpkins aren't in, you know, the, the what we can call them fall squash or winter squash, while they're not so unusual, varieties of them are. So like the kabocha pumpkin, the curry pumpkin, um, the cheese pumpkin. These are, you know, I, there's there's so many varieties. Butternut squash is good. Acorn squash is good. Delicata is good. But if people would embrace these other pumpkin varieties, and they have, they're all sort of like they were born for a different use. And so depending right. on what you're doing, you can get this pumpkin that's just perfectly suited for that. Kabocha makes a wonderful pumpkin pie because it's drier than the butternut squash. Yep. And so I would say, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is all these really unusual varieties of pumpkin. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I love the different 
the different textures, the different sweetness levels um, that that come with the with the different squashes that are available. Um, there's a I, I use kabocha in one of the recipes in my book, um, and so I'm, I'm glad that we're photographing the book now because the kabocha will be really good. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, as I mean, I, I'm curious to actually know to know that it's one of the um, challenges that I've been facing, of course, because I wrote the recipes for my book across an entire year and used a lot of seasonally fresh ingredients. Um, was there anything in the in the photographing of your book and in the production of your book that was like hard to find because of when you were doing it? Absolutely. It was quite hard. Um, so, And I was very lucky to have an incredibly talented photographer, Rick Poon, who flew to San Francisco from LA four times wow. so that we could have four one-week seasonal shoots. Oh, um, and great. we did the whole book. We styled it and, and shot it in my tiny little apartment in San Francisco. And there were a few times, so even actually, even though it's, you know, in the name, the name of the, in the title of the book, Quince was, was that photo shoot. Um, we needed the winter stuff already in, starting to come in and the fall stuff. And Quince is just like this fleeting moment in time. And there, the Quince was still available, but the specimens that were out were kind of like late season on the tree a little too long. So I was able to cook with them, but we didn't get this like beauty shot of Quince, right. which is fine, you know, but the Quince was a little like bruised, but it still tasted beautiful. And sure. And we still made, um, you know, a quince in our almond tart and we made a tagine and I still got to use all the quince. Um, but for the shoot itself, there wasn't like a pretty, yeah. and it's beautiful. It's like this fuzzy yellow apple. It's a beautiful thing. I wish there was a photo of it in the book, but you know, we have, we have internet searches. So right. People can exactly. Find it. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm struggling with chive blossoms because I have a chive I blossom. Saw some infused on Friday. In, did you? I the did. Market? I oh, did. Man. The place that was buying garlic scapes from had some chive blossoms. Uh, then maybe I'll be able to get some. I think that shoot is later in the week so I could send someone to Union's square this week because I'll be shooting but yeah I totally will that's good thank you for the for the intel on that (laughs) because of course I wrote that recipe in May when my chives were blooming on my deck because that was you know they were the first thing to bloom they always are this beautiful purple flowers yeah so uh there's a there's a quote on your website um that says Michelle's food seems at once healthy and hedonistic elegant and effortless and always attainable um, which I think is a is a very you know it's a great description. I'm curious to know um, what about your food you would describe as hedonistic. So and that was actually you know that I remember that was actually written by my predecessor at 18 Reasons um, when I was teaching that class over and uh. over again, and she described my food that way, and I really like it, and it kind of stuck, and, and students you know really understood understood it um, when they actually tasted my food, and. Um, it's, you know, it, I think the word healthy, so I have a biochemistry and nutrition degree. And so people are like, oh, she knows so much about nutrition. And, you know, I will talk about like burdock and dandelion tea and, you know, healing your body with food. Um, but healthy kind of has a negative connotation, I think a little bit. Um, and I, maybe like the, if I now re, when you read that, the word wholesome comes to mind. Like, I think my food is yeah. wholesome, but like I will cook tempeh and komotsuna with pork fat. And right. I think that that's good for me and good for a lot of people. You know what I mean? It's Absolutely. not that it's bad food, right. um, but you know, pork fat is probably considered a hedonistic ingredient. Yeah, I um, think you're right. I mean, I don't need to label it that, but I do think widely it is considered that and I in, in, this, in this country. Um, and you know, but I still consider that dish what I just named off the top of my head randomly. <laughs> um, I still consider that to be wholesome yeah. um, and food that really like feeds my body and like, and I enjoy making and tastes delicious. Um, so, and even in the book, you know, the book is focuses on vegetables, fruits, and herbs, but it's not a vegetarian book. Right. Um, and you know, I, um, that, that wasn't like a hard decision. That's just how I eat. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you, 
you bring up sort of a, I think we're, I'm, I hope that we're at kind of the tail end of healthy being a somewhat negative connotation, right? That the idea that you can either eat healthy, but yes. that means you're depriving yourself of something else um, that you want. And I, you know, I don't think that that, I think wholesome is a much better description of that. I run, a, I run into that same issue um, often when I talk to people about tofu. My father hates tofu mm. because, you know, for most of the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was a meat replacement, not something you would eat with, say, ground pork right, and chilies, which I know he loves. So, you know, I've made him tofu that he liked, but, you know, the fact is that tofu has this sort of, you know, to a lot of people, this sort of like, you know... Austere. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and off-putting idea of it being a meat replacement and sort of like, why am I going to deprive myself of the pork that I want and eat tofu instead? Right. I, I said to the my friend I was having um, breakfast with this morning, I said, you know, this it, right now, like ham and hemp seeds belong on the same menu, and yeah. I'm happy about that. Yep. Um, I think that's where we're at right now, and I, it feels really good. Um, and I think my food has been that way for a little bit. Um, it's just what's been natural to me to cook and eat that way. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about 18 Reasons in San Francisco. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at MoFad.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, and I'm so excited to have Michelle McKenzie in the studio with me today. Um, so, Michelle, before the break, we were talking about your book, and we were talking about uh, vegetables and seasonality and wholesome food. And I want to talk a little bit about your work as the program director at 18 Reasons in San Francisco. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about and uh, describe for the listeners what 18 Reasons is and does? 18 Reasons is a nonprofit community cooking school. Um, we have two programs. We have the um, 18th Street event space, where I primarily do work. Um, it's on 18th Street and the Mission District of um, San Francisco, across from Byright Market and next to Byright Creamery um, near Dolores Park. Those are landmarks that a lot of people know. And um, we also have another program called Cooking Matters. And um, Cooking Matters is a program in which we teach free six-week cooking and nutrition classes in vulnerable communities all over the Bay Area. It's in five counties, and we see, I think last year we saw 4,000 people 
Um, and um, so, yeah, so I run the kind of earned income venture of, of 18 Reasons, and I curate the class calendar at the 18th Street event space. I work with teachers to develop their menus, and I teach as well. Um, and we have a variety of programming. We have um, hands-on cooking classes, wine tastings, beer tastings, herbal home remedy. Um, we have the last Wednesday of every month, we have a community dinner. It's $10 a plate. We invite our community to come and share a meal at communal tables. Um, we serve 80 people at that dinner. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of programming around food and bringing people together. It's uh, at 18reasons.org? Yes, 18reasons.org. And that's the number 18. Yes. The word reasons.org. I highly recommend everybody check check it out if you're in the Bay Area um, and either know about it and have never been there or don't know about it and have never been there. Um, I can't recommend it enough. It's definitely a place that um, coming from, you know, coming from the Brooklyn Kitchen where we do similar programming, um, you know, walking in the door definitely is a place I felt immediately at home. Um, It's a, it's a, it's awesome. It's a, it's a great, uh, a great program and, uh, you know, was started by, by right. Sam O'Gannon was our founding board member. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's across the street from Byright, you know, a fantastic grocery store. Um, So I definitely, people should definitely, definitely check it out. How many classes do you guys run a week? Um, Hands-on classes, we probably have about four a week. Um, We also do, um, we're available to be rented out for private dinners and events. We try to keep that to a minimum, but we do about one of those a week. And then there's usually some sort of wine tasting or beer tasting or some other non-hands-on event that goes on as well. And in in your uh, in your work there, have you seen? You've been there for how long? I've Sorry. been there for a little over three years. Um, as the program director, and I was I've been teaching there for four years. And uh, in that time, have you uh, have you seen the sort of interest of people taking cooking classes shift? Um, like, did you start out seeing people interested in one thing and shift to another? Here at the Brooklyn Kitchen, for example, we're seeing a huge interest in Mediterranean cooking right now and Asian cooking. Those are two really big ones for us. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I started, um, there were only two classes a week. So it's hard to completely gauge like what is just also our increase in programming. But I do, um, you know, I mean, a lot of, all, most of our classes sell out. The one that sells out the most, and I don't know if this is true for you, I mean, I can't put basic knife skills on the calendar Same. enough. Like, Same I thing. honestly think we could teach it every night and it would sell out. Yeah, we've, we've actually, we've joked about that. I mean, that we could just become a knife skills school. Right. Um, so that's the one that just hasn't changed, and it seems to be always in demand. Um, Indian food and Southeast Asian food, um, those sell out near instantly. Um, people um, are really intrigued by those ingredients, and I think, you know, you know, dried shrimp are showing up in, in like little markets and at Whole Foods stores and, you know, Thai food, Pak Pak made like a huge, um, you know, really spread the spread the gospel of delicious Thai food. And so people yeah. are just becoming, you know, these, these so many great cookbooks have come out in the past few years and home cooks are really getting excited to try new ingredients. So you grew up in the South, in Virginia and Tennessee, right? Yeah. Um, what led you to California? Oh, it was a long path. What led me to California? You know, I, I don't know what led me to California. Um, ultimately, I think it's just like a series of small decisions, and I just um, lean, lean, lean in directions that feel good. Um, after you know, I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill and studied um, nutrition and biochemistry, and became really increasingly interested in food and healing and food as medicine. And I went to a school in New York. Um, I moved up here for a little bit that specialized in that. And then just stepped into a restaurant and didn't leave for a few years. And I loved restaurants. And I just was in restaurants. And I moved to Atlanta um, because my my partner had gotten a job in Atlanta. So I moved to Atlanta, stayed in restaurants. And on the side, I was like, 
becoming interested, I didn't want to lose that whole food and healing thing. And I, I got involved with the cancer wellness center at a hospital and started teaching cancer patients um, how to cook. Was that and your first foray into cooking classes? Into cooking classes, yes. And um, I would come home exhausted from these classes and yet so satisfied and filled up. Um, and so um, when uh, when my partner got a job in California um, and there was a company out there that was just so perfect for him, I mean, I didn't hesitate. I kind of think I'd, I would live anywhere. I mean, I'm kind of like I'm generally easy in that way. But we, we picked up and moved to California. I mean, it's a great place to be, sure. <laughs> like on paper. I had never been to San Francisco when I moved there. Um, and on paper, it was great. And I know that they, I knew that they had good food. And I was, you know, Atlanta's great, too. But I was ready, ready for a change. So we moved to California um, on a whim. And I just when I got when I got to California, I just, um, you know, Googled like cooking, like cooking classes. And I found 18 Reasons. And I found another nonprofit that was teaching kids at Mission High right across the street from 18 Reasons. And I started um, assisting with the cooking classes, like upon upon landing in San Francisco, assisting with those teen classes, and then was there for four years, wow. teaching teenagers how to feed themselves and using food as a way to develop leadership skills and academic skills as well. Um, and then I started teaching 18 Reasons at night. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of this, this it, you know, I don't know if it was... A, there's all these like um, paths that I kind of that I kind of go down and explore, and if something feels good, I just stay there. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, I bet the, the you know one of the things that I love watching kids, and when I say kids, that you know everybody from like kindergarten all the way to high school. I mean, I love watching students um, and what happens when they start to understand food, um, and anybody really who sort of doesn't have an understanding. But I just I find the sort of the students when we bring them in and we have classes with school school groups and we they're on a field trip i just i feel like they are, their eyes open up and you see their brains kind of like soak everything in all at once and to me that's one of my favorite moments in the kitchen um, food commands all the senses and yeah. when that happens it's like exhilarating um, and i agree i love i love watching that i've taught 5 to 9 years old 5 to 9 year olds and um, third graders and high school students and it is it is never it never gets old yeah. um yeah, they're always excited. To, like, the young kids are even excited to do dishes. Yeah. It's like, who wants to do dishes? And they rush to help you. Like, yep. all every aspect of it is this, like, really joyful experience. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like part of it is, at least from remembering my own sort of my own uh, school age time, um, you know, I remember so little from being in the classroom, but I remember all about field trips. Mm. Like, field trips experience. stand out. Yeah, they stand out in my mind of, mm. of being an experience that you remember, whereas I don't remember what you did on a random Wednesday in math right. class. Exactly. So being from Virginia and, and Tennessee, is there anything that you miss? Is there anything that you like remember from your childhood, either ingredient wise or food wise that you can't, can't get or don't see as often as you'd like? You know, I would say that's a, that's a good question. No one asks me that. Um, you know what I, I mean? The first thing that comes to mind was just like waking. I lived with my grandparents for a few years and like waking up to my grandfather's cooking. Like I don't wake up to anybody cooking for me anymore. <laughs> and um, I do. I'm very fortunate to have friends and people in my life who, who aren't intimidated to cook for me, which no one should be. I love being, I love it when people feed me and um, it always tastes good. Um, but to wake up to the smell of like fried cornbread and bacon and potatoes and eggs. My grandfather was an early riser. He would like wake up, put on his 
Wrangler overalls and go out into his garden, I don't know, 4.30 a.m., and then come back in and make breakfast. And just, yeah, waking up to that smell, um, I would say that would be the thing I miss the most. Yeah. So it sounds like you grew up around cooking and around around vegetables, so your grandparents had a garden? I did. My, my grandfather um, and my grandmother lived on seven acres of land, um, and in the back he had a garden where he grew, you know, things that grow in the hot, the hot south, so it was tomatoes and watermelon and things like that, um, cucumbers. There was always a cucumber, um, onion, and vinegar salad on the table at every meal, which is great because, you know, there's always in the south, there's like cucumbers are around all the time, and you're always eating like you know, kind of like fatty meat. And there, it was such a good compliment to cut, yeah. cut through that fat. Um, and, um, my dad and my mom are both, were both good cooks are still good cooks. And they, they cook very different, differently from one another. My mom would always like favor the, the kind of light foods, like baked fish with lemon and rice. And then my dad was definitely like much more hedonistic and he's a wonderful cook, but he would, he would cook like, you know, kind of a Sunday sauce type thing that had like ground meat and sausage and like fresh tomato sauce, um, on pasta, like, you know, and they, they, but they, I don't remember eating out very much. They both cooked a lot. Um, and then I was also really fortunate. My, my best friend in high school was from Baku and she lived with her grandparents and her brother and her parents. And I was introduced to this whole other world of cooking and cuisine. Um, and you know, it has like an Armenian influence and like a Persian influence and a Russian influence. And so starting in, in eighth grade, I was eating that food a few times a week, right. which just blew my mind. <laughs> it was the first time I had lamb and, um, with pomegranate and oh, nice. lavash and herbs. And I, um, that may have been the real like trigger to like, I mean, I think at that point I was hooked on feeding people. Right. Yeah. Do you cook a lot now? Um, I cook home? every day. And honestly, all this travel uh, has been has been difficult. I miss cooking. I feel... I, I was starting to feel, like, disaffected by food because I'm not in it. Like, yeah. my hands aren't in it. Sure. It's all... I mean, restaurants are great, but it kind of... And it, I'm still enjoying food, but it's a little bit conceptual in my head. Like, I'm not... I'm like, how is this done? Like, I want to see it. I want to smell it. I want to, like... And I'm not feeding somebody else. So, um, teaching yesterday was huge. It, like, grounds me again. And, like, I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, this is what I... This is what feels good. <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> um, but um, I do. I cook. I honestly... I'm a savory breakfast person. So I make a savory breakfast most mornings. Um, and then I usually, like I mentioned the lamb shoulder and stretching it. I definitely have a way because I, you know, I work a full-time job and, you know, I have this book too and it's hard. I don't have a lot of time, but I'll, I'll make a big something, whether that's like a glut of roasted beets or a lamb shoulder, and then I'll turn it into multiple quicker, like, but delicious meals throughout the week. Yeah. Well, we're pretty much out of time, but thank you so much for joining me. People can uh, find you online, right? Michelle McKenzie. Yes, michellemckenzie.com, and the book is available in all of the regular outlets. Awesome. So uh, definitely check out Dandelion and Quince, exploring the wide world of unusual vegetables, fruits, and herbs. There, I pronounced that much Perfect. better this time than earlier in the show. <laughs> um, and thank you for listening to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here at Feast Your Ears, and David Tattashore here at Heritage Radio Network. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Foodballer and Michelle on Instagram at... Michelle um, underscore A underscore McKenzie. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 